You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 221 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Earl Van Dorn cut a dashing figure, no doubt about it. Handsome, always well-dressed, and an expert in the saddle, Van Dorn was also a womanizer who would be shot down in 1863 by a betrayed husband. He took to combat like a duck to water, but promoted to high command in the war's Western theater, Van Dorn, unfortunately for the Confederacy, failed to prove himself a good field commander. At the October 5, 1862 Battle of Davis's Bridge, in the aftermath of the Confederate defeat at Corinth, much of Van Dorn's force escaped capture or destruction thanks primarily to federal blunders rather than any strategic brilliance on Van Dorn's part. Forty-two years old in the fall of 1862, Earl Van Dorn was a West Point graduate who saw extensive service during the Mexican War and then duty on the Texas frontier against hostile Indians. Van Dorn resigned from the U.S. Army when his home state of Mississippi seceded. Appointed to command the newly created Trans-Mississippi District in January 1862 by fellow Mississippian and Confederate President Jefferson Davis, Van Dorn saw the Civil War as an opportunity for glory. He wrote in a letter, quote, Who knows but that out of the storm of revolution I may not be able to catch a spark of lightning and shine through all time to come. He caught more than a spark of lightning when he rashly rushed into an offensive in northwest Arkansas that ended when an outnumbered federal force smashed Van Dorn's Army of the West at the Battle of Pea Ridge in early March 1862. After that defeat, Van Dorn was ordered to bring his command east of the Mississippi River, but he arrived too late to take part in the Battle of Shiloh. In the autumn of 1862, Van Dorn was handed another chance when the two principal Confederate field armies launched offensives aimed at turning the war's momentum. Robert E. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia invaded Maryland, and Braxton Bragg and Kirby Smith struck north into Kentucky. Back in Mississippi, Van Dorn and Sterling Price were assigned the task of preventing Ulysses S. Grant, the commander of the Federal's District of West Tennessee, from reinforcing Don Carlos Buell, whose Army of the Ohio had set off after Bragg. After the Battle of Iuka, Van Dorn and Price finally managed to link up, 
and Van Dorn as senior officer, took command of the combined Confederate force. Much as he had in Arkansas, here Van Dorn also decided to immediately take the offensive. He was determined to attack the important railroad junction town of Corinth, Mississippi, which had fallen to the Yankees after the Battle of Shiloh. Seizing Corinth, Van Dorn reasoned, would open the door to greater things, allowing him to march north and help Bragg take the war to the banks of the Ohio River. Sterling Price had serious misgivings about Van Dorn's plan. Price thought that Union General William Rosecrans held Corinth with 15,000 men, which Price believed was far too many for an attacking rebel force of just 22,000 to overcome. In fact, though, Rosecrans actually had the ability to swiftly concentrate 23,000 troops to defend Corinth. It's a military axiom that an attacking force should outnumber defenders by at least three to one, but Van Dorn counted on speed and surprise to defeat Rosecrans. And so on September 29, 1862, just one day after he and Price had finally joined forces, Van Dorn started his optimistically named Army of West Tennessee north from Ripley, Mississippi to Pocahontas, Tennessee, just across the state line. But this move north was just a feint to keep the Yankees guessing as to his real target. At Pocahontas, the rebels swung east onto the state line road. From Pocahontas, it was three miles to Davis's Bridge, a simple wooden structure spanning the Hatchie River. Three miles more brought them to the Tuscumbia River, and in another five miles, they reached the village of Chihuahua. Breaking camp at Chihuahua before dawn on October 3rd, Van Dorn pushed his army 12 miles through blistering heat to the outskirts of Corinth, then went directly into the attack. For eight hours, the Confederates attacked in 100-degree heat, without food, and with scarcely a drop of water. The following day, the rebels' attacks on batteries Robinette and Powell stand as among the fiercest assaults of the war. In the end, the rebels pressed the Yankees to the breaking point, but could not complete their victory, and federal counterattacks forced Van Dorn to issue orders for a retreat. Confederate casualties at Corinth were simply appalling, with nearly one in five rebel soldiers who went into the battle ending up dead, wounded, or missing. More than half of Sterling Price's line officers fell. After the battle, Dabney Morey's division existed in name only. He had taken 4,800 men to Corinth and lost 2,000. John Moore's brigade of Morey's division was all but annihilated, losing 1,295 of 1,895 men. The near destruction of Morey's division was all the more devastating because it was the best unit in Van Dorn's army. To spare Morey's badly battered division further damage, Van Dorn placed it in the lead as the army withdrew from Corinth on the afternoon of October 4th. By some accounts, Van Dorn, after two days of brutal fighting, was near collapse by that time. He had counted on a victory at Corinth to erase the stigma of Pea Ridge. At any rate, Van Dorn's subordinates had assumed they would bivouac that night along the Tuscumbia River's west bank, as far from Rosecrans as possible, so they were surprised and dismayed to receive orders to make camp instead at Chihuahua. 
Yep, you see, Van Dorn had decided to regroup for another go at Corinth, hoping to somehow snatch victory from defeat and salvage his reputation. But any respect Dabney Morey might have had for Earl Van Dorn's generalship was gone. The Confederates lost precious time while Morey and Sterling Price tried to convince Van Dorn his plan was absurd and they should continue their retreat at first light. It was well after midnight before Van Dorn listened to reason and reluctantly ordered the army to cross the Hatchie at Davis Bridge, then turn south and return to Ripley. Van Dorn's return to reason appeared to have come too late. That morning, couriers from Wirt Adams' rebel cavalry reported a substantial federal force closing in on Davis Bridge from the northwest. The reports were accurate. By the afternoon of October 3rd, although he didn't know specifics, Ulysses S. Grant did know that Rosecrans was engaged in a fight for Corinth, and so he ordered the Union forces nearest Corinth to reinforce Rosecrans. Five regiments under James McPherson started from Bethel to Corinth, and Stephen Hurlbut led his division from Bolivar, Tennessee, toward Davis Bridge. If the Confederates were still threatening Corinth when he reached the bridge, Hurlbut was to press on and strike them from behind. Should Hurlbut find the rebels retreating from Corinth, though, he was to destroy the bridge and contest their crossing of the Hatchie. But Grant expected a federal victory at Corinth, and so he ordered Rosecrans to vigorously pursue Van Dorn after the battle ended. To Grant, the destruction of Van Dorn's army seemed all but certain, so long as both Hurlbut and Rosecrans did as directed. If Hurlbut destroyed Davis's bridge and Rosecrans advanced rapidly from Corinth, Grant would have the Confederates trapped in the narrow area between the Hatchie and Tuscumbia rivers. If Van Dorn's army could be destroyed, the Federals would have secured northern Mississippi, and Grant would have a clear path to his ultimate objective, Vicksburg. With Federals approaching Davis Bridge from the northwest, Van Dorn realized that time was at a premium, and so the Army's order of march couldn't be reshuffled to place a division less battered than Maury's in the lead. So the Confederate commander improvised by directing the 1st Texas Legion of Colonel E.R. Hawkins, which was guarding the Army's supply train two miles east of David Bri Davis Bridge, to join Wirt Adams' cavalry on the Hatchie and hold on until Mari arrived. Meanwhile, Van Dorn would search for another escape route. Along the Hatchie, Confederate prospects appeared dire. On the night of October 4th, Hurlbut bivouacked his 5,000 men just three miles short of Davis Bridge. At 8 a.m. on Sunday, October 5th, he led the brigades of Brigadier General James Veach, Colonel Robert Scott, and Brigadier General Jacob Lawman along the state line road toward the Hatchie. In less than an hour, Veach's troops had brushed aside Adams' pickets and reached the town of Metamora, three-quarters of a mile short of Davis Bridge. Ahead of the Federals, bisecting the state line road, stretched the mile-long Metamora Ridge. From the ridge, the ground, open and partly cultivated with corn, sloped down gently eastward toward a tree line that marked the course of the Hatchie. Veach and Scott deployed their seven regiments in line of battle on the ridge's near slope. 
No, soon, no sooner had Hurlbut made his dispositions than his immediate superior, Major General Edward O.C. Ord, arrived on the scene to take command. Meanwhile, at Davis Bridge, Wirt Adams prepared for the Yankee onslaught, throwing the 1st Texas Legion across the bridge, past the Davis House, and into the huge Davis Field to slow the enemy advance. Actually, though, the Texans would have done better to stay on the east bank of the river, where the nature of the terrain created an almost perfect defensive position. Yep, uh, that's because 300 yards north of the bridge, the river bent sharply from the southwest to the south. Then just south of the bridge, it changed course abruptly to the east. Along this stretch, the state line road paralleled the Hatchie, with only half an acre of ground between the road and river bank. So that meant that once they crossed the bridge, the Federals would have little room in which to deploy. The open ground north of the road might, with effort, accommodate a brigade, that is, several regiments. But once over Davis Bridge, an attacking force faced an even greater obstacle than lack of room to maneuver. That's because 500 yards east of the bridge, the ground rose from spongy bottomland to a steep, timbered bluff that dominated the crossing site. Taken together, the constricted terrain, the bluff, and the river formed a compact killing zone into which any attacking federal force would be channeled. But as he approached the river that Sunday morning, Dabney Morey had no time to evaluate the terrain. Van Dorn had ordered him to cross over and occupy Metamora Ridge before the Yankees reached it, and so Morey swept over the bluff and across Davis Bridge. He was at the head of John Moore's wrecked brigade, which fatigue and the heat had reduced to just 300 men. Federal artillery atop Metamora Ridge opened fire on the Confederates as they passed the Davis House. With the Yankees already in possession of the ridge, Morey, recognizing the futility of any further advance, ordered Moore's brigade to file off the road and take cover in a skirt of trees lining a creek called Burr's Branch. Hawkins' Texas Legion was already here on the side of the Hatchie, of course, having been thrown across the bridge by Wirt Adams to slow the enemy advance, so Moore linked up his line with the Texans. Moore and Hawkins then awaited the Federals' next move. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. (laughs) 
History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. At 9 a.m., the Federal Brigades of Veatch and Scott charged down off Metamora Ridge, leaping ditches, climbing over fences, and shoving through hedges and brambles to close with the rebels. The sheer weight of Union numbers overwhelmed Moore's and Hawkins' thin line of defenders. Two Illinois regiments slipped into a cornfield beyond Moore's right, filed a volley into his flank, then charged on toward the hatchie. The rebels scattered, some plunging into the river and a few running the gauntlet of federal fire and recrossing Davis Bridge. Nearly 200 Confederates surrendered. One exhausted Arkansan probably spoke for many when he admitted, quote, As for my part, I was so hot and tired that I didn't care about trying to swim with my clothes on and risk getting shot in the back, so of course I surrendered. Two enterprising soldiers from the 14th Illinois rousted five rebel officers and 32 enlisted men from the bushes along the water's edge. One of the Yankees shouted toward the brush, Boys, you are in a tight place, and I feel sorry, yes, very sorry for you. There is no escape for you. Now, I will give you your choice. Surrender to me and have plenty to eat and drink. Or you can shoot us down and take the consequences when our men capture you, for capture you they will. The Illinoisans' bluster and the promise of food carried the day, and the group of tired, hungry rebels surrendered. With the debacle on the west side of the Hatchie, Moore's brigade had ceased to exist. When Colonel Sol Ross's brigade of Confederates arrived on the scene, Sterling Price, rather than use Ross to anchor a defensive line on the east bank, instead ordered him to cross the bridge. Before Morey and Moore were able to convince Ross to go back, Veach's Federals gathered up a hundred of Ross's men as prisoners. When the survivors of the disaster on the west bank, that is, what remained of Moore's, Hawkins, and Ross's commands, had managed to pull back across the river, they flopped down beside Wirt Adams' troopers behind the bluff on the east bank overlooking Davis Bridge. On the crest of the bluff, Maury's chief of artillery massed five batteries of guns loaded with shot and shell to contest any federal crossing of the bridge. Something about the fighting at Davis Bridge seemed to inspire foolish command decisions. Before, the Confederates would have been much better off staying on the east side of the river, and now the Union General Ord, in clearing the rebels from the west bank of the Hatchie, had accomplished his mission, and he need only burn the bridge and hold his ground to put Van Dorn in a tight spot here at the river, river while presumably Rosecrans pressed him from the rear. 
But instead, Ord chose to cross Davis Bridge, one regiment at a time, in column of fours. That is, the Yankees would charge across the bridge in a column four men wide. Once across the bridge, the regiments were to deploy from column into line of battle, alternating between the north and south side of the road. Not only did Ord intend to commit Veach and Scott to an attack on the east bank, but he also called up Lawmen. Once across the bridge, Ord counted on forming a line of battle on a front twelve regiments long, six regiments on the north side of the state line road, and six south of the road. That force would then charge forward and sweep a rebel force of indeterminate strength off dominating high ground. That was Ord's plan, anyway. Federal Division Commander Stephen Hurlbut was horrified at Ord's plan. He had encamped earlier that year on the bluff that Ord hoped to take, and Hurlbut advised him that once across the river, the Federals on the south side of the road would scarcely have room enough to deploy one regiment, let alone half a dozen. But Ord brushed off Hurlbut's concerns and ordered the movement to begin. Half an hour before noon, the 53rd Indiana started across Davis's bridge. The front ranks were quickly swept away by Confederate cannon fire and musketry. Pressing onward to the east bank, the 53rd's colonel herded his men to the right into the soggy strip of ground beside the hatchie. As enemy fire continued to lash them, men dove into the water or huddled along the river bank, refusing to rally. The 14th Illinois crossed the bridge next, filing to the left, but a storm of shot shot and shell drove them back to the riverbank, and so it went. The 25th Indiana crossed next and stumbled into the milling mass of men on the right. Behind them, the 15th Illinois double-quicked across the bridge, filed to the left, and there tried to avoid stepping on hundreds of men, quote, weltering in their own blood, in the words of one participant. The 14th Illinois struggled forward from the riverbank, across the open ground, and into the thick woods. The 15th Illinois formed on their left. Apart from keeping their heads down, though, there was nothing the Illinoisans could do. A private of the 15th recalled how, quote, The rebels were strongly posted behind a rail fence a few yards in front of us, but so thick was the underbrush that we could not see them. Jacob Lawman's brigade came up next and prepared to cross over the bridge. Ord was planning to go all in on what appeared, at least to the unfortunate Federals presently on the east bank, to already be a lost cause. Meanwhile, the 53rd Illinois plunged into the confused mass of men on the east bank. The 28th Illinois crossed next, stumbling into the rear ranks of the 53rd. The 28th's commander tried to move to the side, but ran out of ground to maneuver. Those of his men with a clear field of fire began to shoot toward the enemy, but blinded by the gunpowder smoke that hung low in the hot, humid air between the bridge and the bluff, their shots hit little more than trees and brush. But the Confederates could hardly miss. Colonel Rasterman, at the head of his Arkansas sharpshooters, said, quote, we would allow them to approach until we could see the whites of their eyes. Then, without exposing ourselves in the least, we would pour volley after volley into them, cutting them down like grass. I never saw such slaughter in my life. 
Brigadier General William Cable's brigade of Confederates arrived on the scene, coming up beside Saul Ross's men, and added 550 more rebel muskets to the turkey shoot. Meanwhile, Ord, with four regiments mingling helplessly on the half acre of hell south of the road, at last realized he had made a terrible mistake. But rather than order a retreat, he started over the bridge himself. However, he was hit in the leg as he crossed the span and knocked off his horse. He was carried to the rear, where a surgeon examined the wound. Fortunately for Ord, the bullet hadn't shattered any bones, so he could keep his leg. But with Ord out of the fight, Hurlbut resumed command. Hurlbut calculated that he would lose more men if he recalled the troops already on the east bank, instead of having them just hold their ground. So he temporarily abandoned the crowd on the south side of the state line road to their fate, and sent every remaining regiment to the left to outflank the Confederates there. That was Hurlbut's plan anyway. But you know what happens to a plan when I say that. So, yeah. Veach crossed his remaining regiment and the two regiments of Scott's small brigade to the east bank about 3 p.m., and they dutifully filed to the left, extending the federal line to the north by several hundred yards. But then Lawman misunderstood Hurlbut's orders. Riding across Davis Bridge at the head of his lead regiment, Lawman veered into the deadly pocket south of the road. In his haste to enter the battle, Lawman neglected his second regiment, the 3rd Iowa. Commanded by a mere captain, the Iowans stumbled across the bridge, but then had no idea where to deploy. Within a matter of minutes, 57 men and half the unit's officers were cut down. Many more would have fallen if the Confederate fire hadn't tapered off and then ceased shortly after 3 o'clock. With the line of battle that Hurlbut had fashioned north of the road, he started forward to assault and outflank the rebel line on the bluff. Hurlbut reported, It is among the proudest moments of my life when I remember how promptly the several regiments disengaged themselves from their temporary confusion and with what a will they bent themselves to conquer the hill. Hurlbut didn't mention the agony that the temporary confusion had caused, but behind the advancing lines of Federals, heaped on the bridge, strewn along the road, or clustered to the south of it, were more than 500 dead or wounded Yankees. Hurlbut may have been proud of how his men started forward, but they advanced unopposed. You see, the Confederate fire from the bluff had ceased because the rebels had pulled out. By that afternoon, Van Dorn no longer needed them to hold Davis Bridge. Confederate cavalry under Frank Armstrong had scouted southward along the Hatchie and found a crossing six miles south of Davis Bridge. Before realizing he would need it, Van Dorn had earlier ordered Crumb's Bridge burned. But Armstrong's horsemen quickly fashioned a crude crossing by laying planks and boards over a small dam beside the wrecked bridge. The crossing site was reached by way of the Boneyard Road, which branched off from the State Line Road two miles east of Davis Bridge. From Crumbs Bridge, it was a 15-mile march to Ripley. By mid-afternoon on Sunday, the last of the Army's supply train had turned onto Boneyard Road, which meant that Maury could begin to withdraw from Davis Bridge. Hurlbut's Federals were too disorganized to give chase and perhaps Hurlbut was too drunk to lead them. 
a rumor circulated that he had succumbed to an alcohol-induced fog while the smoke of battle still hung over Davis Bridge. Whether his Yankee opponent was sober or not, Dabney Mari had reason to feel proud. For six hours, he had withstood assaults by an enemy four times his number. He had inflicted 570 casualties on the Federals, while the cost to his own force was primarily the 300 men of Moore's Brigade captured over on the Hatchie's west bank. Once the Yankees crossed the bridge to the east side of the river, their fire caused only 38 Confederate casualties. Also working in Van Dorn's favor was Rosecrans' bungled pursuit. His columns started late and then took incorrect routes or became jumbled up on the march. Only McPherson's five regiments neared the Tuscumbia River before nightfall on Sunday, and they were driven off in a sharp skirmish. The commander of the Confederate Army's rear guard, Brigadier General John Bowen, said he crossed the Tuscumbia, quote, at my leisure, tore up and burned the bridge and obstructed the ford nearby. Sterling Price, who had left the fight at Davis Bridge to Dabney Mari early in the battle, was on hand at Crumbs Bridge to shepherd the army across Armstrong's makeshift span. All night long, Price labored to keep it from collapsing, sometimes personally lending a hand to shore up the rickety arrangement. Van Dorn's contribution was limited to warning Price to make haste. Not until 1 a.m. on Monday, October 6th, did a bone-tired Price see the last of the army over the Hatchie and on its way toward Ripley. Although his ill-advised attack on Corinth had been a bloody failure, Earl Van Dorn took considerable satisfaction in having extracted his retreating army from between converging federal columns. Ulysses S. Grant, on the other hand, was disappointed, as he had been after Iuka, that another one of his carefully crafted plans to trap the enemy had miscarried. Grant blamed Rosecrans for the failure of his plan to crush Van Dorn's army, since Old Rosie had failed to aggressively pursue the retreating rebels after Corinth. Rosecrans' stock was nevertheless on the rise in Washington after his victory at Corinth, and he would be appointed to succeed Don Carlos Buell in command of the Army of the Ohio, after Buell's stock plunged because of his conduct during Braxton Bragg's invasion of Kentucky. At any rate, Grant's displeasure with Rosecrans and the subsequent squabbling between them poisoned their relationship— with significant results the following year when an ascendant grant held Rosecrans' future in his hands at Chattanooga. The events in northern Mississippi in the autumn of 1862 at Iuka and Corinth and Davis Bridge had consequences for the war in the West which aren't generally appreciated. The utter defeat at Corinth of the Confederate force led by Van Dorn eliminated the only sizable rebel command standing between Ulysses S. Grant's Union Army and Vicksburg. After Corinth, the way was clear for Grant to proceed with his campaign against Vicksburg, that formidable Confederate bastion guarding the Mississippi River. Defeat at Corinth also contributed to the collapse of Bragg's operations up in Kentucky. Bragg himself later said it was a determining factor in the failure of his invasion of the Bluegrass State, 
but Bragg undoubtedly exaggerated the impact of events in northern Mississippi in order to deflect criticism from his own errors. But there is nevertheless some truth to his assertion. Yeah, you see, Bragg had counted on Van Dorn and Price to not only prevent federal reinforcements from being sent to Buell, but he also wanted them to strike northward into western Tennessee to protect his strategic left flank. Van Dorn and Price, however, disappointed Bragg on both counts. And while Bragg already had fought and lost the Battle of Perryville, by the time he learned of Van Dorn's defeat at Corinth, that news helped convince him that he must withdraw from Kentucky. The ruination of Van Dorn's force left Bragg's as the only significant Confederate command in the West and exposed Chattanooga to capture, compelling Bragg to abandon the Bluegrass State and fall back into Tennessee to protect the southern heartland. And then a final word on Ulysses S. Grant is probably in order, since, remember, at the time of Iuka and Corinth, he was still under a shadow for his near defeat at Shiloh. General-in-Chief Henry Halleck mistrusted Grant and would have gladly put him on the shelf, and President Abraham Lincoln hadn't yet come to fully appreciate Grant's talents. And so, had the Federals lost at Corinth, he may well have been sacked, and rather than go on to succeed in one of the greatest campaigns of the Civil War in capturing Vicksburg, Ulysses S. Grant may instead have returned to obscurity at a leather goods store in Galena, Illinois. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is actually another back issue of a Civil War magazine. Yep, uh, last week we recommended an issue of Blue and Gray magazine, which covers Corinth, and this week we're recommending another issue of Blue and Gray that covers Davis Bridge. It's volume 24, issue number 4, and although Blue and Gray magazine, sadly, is no longer in publication, this back issue, like many others, is well worth picking up if you want to dig deeper into a particular topic, like here with Davis Bridge. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the podcast Facebook page and Twitter feed. You can also sign up to join the Strawfoot Brigade, and once you do, you'll have access to over 60 members' episodes there on the website. Anyway, thanks to Don B., who joined the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade this past week. As we wrap things up for this show, we wanted to let you know that up next on the podcast, we'll be heading across the Mississippi River to my home state of Arkansas, and we'll be looking at the Battle of Prairie Grove, which took place not very far from my hometown of Fayetteville on December 7, 1862. Yes, uh, we're looking forward to that, especially since on our recent trip back home, just last month in fact, Tracy and her dad made a visit to the Prairie Grove Battlefield. Okay, so that'll be up next week, but thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.